Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Season has ended with UGA finally defeating the University of Alabama. We turn our attention fully now to the NFL playoffs. Jay is not feeling strong about his team. I'm hopeful for the Cowboys. We're also going to look at some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories in this edition. I hope you will check out one of the latest additions to the Compliance Podcast Network, Hidden Traffic, where host Gwen Hassan looks at the scourge of modern slavery and human trafficking and what you, the compliance professional, can do from the corporate perspective. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back again with Mr. Monitors himself, Jay Rosen, for this week in FCPA, episode 286 for the week ending, January 14, 2022, the Georgia Finally Beats Alabama edition. Go dogs. College football season. <laughs> On that note, we're going to have a quick word from our sponsor, and we'll be right back. Season has ended with UGA finally defeating the University of Alabama. We turn our attention fully now to the NFL playoffs. Jay is not feeling strong about his team. I'm hopeful for the Cowboys. We're also going to look at some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories in this edition. Jay, what say ye? Let's talk about anything but football. What's the first story, Tom? So, Jay, um, Carnival Cruise Lines has just had a disastrous time since they agreed to a deferred prosecution agreement uh, with uh, millions of dollars in fines for their clear compliance violations over a number of years. Uh, in 2019, they were convicted of six probation violations, which cost them an additional $20 million. And this year, uh, or rather this week, uh, they uh, were convicted of yet another um, uh, DPA violation, probation violation, which uh, Matt Kelly, the coolest guy in compliance, wrote about. And it's it's pretty troubling, Jay, uh, but it's also a bit of a head-scratcher because what they failed to do leading to the second DPA violation, uh, which had an additional $1 million fine, was set up an internal investigations department. And this is one of the most basic functions in compliance, and for reasons 
that are completely unknown. Carnival refused or didn't do that. And the order entered into by the court was specific that uh, Carnival must restructure in its investigations office to directly report to the board. They have to be given, the investigations office has to be given the authority to initiate investigations and determine investigation scope. Carnival could not remove um, the head of this group, uh, rather Cardinal Senior Management. Uh, the company must uh, conduct an assessment to see if the independent investigators have sufficient resources. They must assess the effectiveness of the changes. And then here's the kicker. For every day, day that this doesn't happen, it'll be $100,000 per day in fines and $500,000 per day after 10 days. So somebody's pretty pissed off here, Jay. We rarely see this uh, in the FCPA world, and this is not the FCPA. It was violations for uh, environmental laws. But when you couple it with the prior uh, post-DPA fine and penalty of $40 million, you begin to really see a pattern and practice of conduct which bespeaks of a lack of uh, commitment to fulfill the obligations and really a culture of noncompliance, certainly at the top of the organization and apparently permeating all the way down. So um, rarely do you see things this stark, Jay. Um, and obviously, Carnival is a huge corporation, uh, a big uh, economic player in Miami and the Caribbean. Uh, the company or the the government does not want Carnival to go away. Uh, so they have a monitor, and the monitor has heavily criticized uh, Carnival's culture and their attitude and their execution. So a pretty damning fine and penalty here. We've linked, of course, to uh, Matt's article, and I also linked to the Department of Justice press release. So um, do you Very think Tom, this is possibly another one of those tea leaves that DOJ is sending us because this is a, a real a recidivist here? So maybe this is the teeth that we're looking at in Lisa Monaco's speech and uh, the president's speech. Could you divine anything from that, from the, this matter? Uh, I certainly think you're on to something there, Jay. Um, but this conduct is so outrageous uh, I mean, it, Jim McGrath, 10 years ago, talked about independent investigations and the need for independent investigations. And um, this is something that's been known in compliance for the entire time I've been in compliance, that you have to have an internal investigations function. And if you think about uh, fraud risk and many of our colleagues who come from the fraud risk, uh, ACFE world, uh, if you can't do an internal investigation for fraud, you're going to get defrauded, whether it's your own employees or third-party vendors or some con uh, collusion uh, between the two groups. And so uh, Carnival Management, really, uh, apparently they uh, shut down investigations. They reduced scope of investigations. It's not clear from the DOJ press release whether they terminated employees in their investigation department, but senior management uh, needs a real wake-up call. And I guess the next step is maybe start putting some of these people in jail or, or penalizing the senior management who's engaging in this conduct directly. Uh, but uh, somebody's pretty pissed off here, Jay. 
So uh, speaking about anti-corruption strategy, uh, here's the first of two from the FCPA blog. This is from our colleague Worth McMurray. And Worth was going to talk about how will the U.S. prioritize implementation of its new anti-corruption strategy. Corruption is no longer the U.S. government's PNG, persona non grata, reluctantly acknowledged and now somewhat ignored outside FCPA enforcement. The president's summer national security memorandum, coupled with recent U.S. strategy on countering corruption, placed government and other anti-corruption activities at the front and center. This memo designates corruption as a national security priority, and the follow-on and comprehensive strategy specifies the government's anti-corruption priority areas, known as Strategic Objectives, SOs, and Ongoing and Planned Activities, Line of Effort, LOES, under the umbrella of five pillars, the U.S. government's efforts, illicit finance, accountability, the multilateral architecture, and diplomacy, foreign aid. They've noticed that certain sectors are being targeted. Certain historically corrupt, high-risk business sectors and sector participants are being singled out, including financial services, real estate, arts and antiquities, and their related professional gatekeepers. These are LOEs in the SO 2.1, and they cover, among other areas, beneficial ownership, transparency improvements, revised treasury regulations or reviews for cash finance real estate transactions, and certain forms of equity investments. In terms of the bribery component of corruption's harm to individuals and society, this is a primary theme of the strategy. Accountability, pillar strategic objectives, particularly emphasizing anti-bribery activities. Significantly, there's a long overdue recognition of the legal structure gaps on the demand side of the bribery equation. Leading business practices and standards. The strategy borrows liberally from the private sector. Risk management practitioners will recognize familiar leading management system anti-corruption methodologies and practices in the strategy's approach. In sense, the overall strategy document functions as a new national security priorities risk assessment. It analyzes corruption's risks landscape in context from the government's point of view. The role of civil society, similar to the strategy's embrace of the private sector involvement, society's role in effectively countering transnational corruption is prominently featured throughout the document. And in the end of this, we're going to take a look at China. The strategy's 800-pound gorilla is China, not explicitly mentioned but omnipresent. The document focuses on strategic corruption when a government weaponizes corporate practices as a tenant of its foreign policy. Clearly indicates that the U.S. is targeting China's coercive overseas development practices. Strategy skeptics abound. Is it a paper strategy, in quotes? Or is it packaging and a new name for activities already underway or planned before the memos or the strategy's issuance? How will the strategy's numerous and ambitious LOEs be effectively directed, coordinated, and implemented, and can a divided Congress come together to amend the FCPA? Government follow-through, prioritization, execution, and communication will be necessary to make meaningful anti-corruption impacts and products 
visible and produce visible results. Sectors targeted by the strategy, including government contractors and those doing business overseas, would be well advised to recognize the document spirit and closely follow its implementation. Tom, next up, the DOJs are going to take a look at short sellers. Why is this happening now? You know, that's a really interesting question, Jay, because many think short sellers actually perform a have a place in the market because they hold companies accountable when their share prices are artificially increased. And probably the best example we can point to is uh, Bill Ackerman, who several years ago took on a multi-level marketing company and um claimed that their share prices were incorrectly inflated. What he didn't know was that the reason they were so inflated was the company was engaging in bribery and corruption in overseas markets to sell products. Uh, so he had it that they were engaging in illegal activity, uh, but it was uh, FCPA violations. And so I guess I'm uh, of two minds. There are some who think that prime brokers, hedge funds, and market makers rig the system uh, by uh, uh, setting up short sales so that they can cash in. There's other situations where it's been pretty clear. Uh, there's a well-known short seller in the Far East called Muddy Waters who publishes some pretty detailed reports. Indeed, your colleague, Mikhail um, Ryder Gordon, is... It back with her Wirecard series. Well, Wirecard was brought down by short sellers. And then record reporters who picked up the story of Wirecard, not the regulators. So um, the, um, the people that engage in short selling, some are nefarious, some are slime bags, some are um, legitimate. Uh, it's not illegal to do so unless you're manipulating stock. So... Um, it's going to be interesting to see which way the, the DOJ comes out on this. Uh, but we've unfortunately had many instances of short sellers who have correctly noted that companies' books uh, were more air than substance um, going for, uh, when they looked at them. So if we lose a market protection, even if it's a, a business part of the market protection, I think uh, that's something. But uh, some... Some people think that short selling is the largest commercial fraud uh, going on. So it's been interesting to see what the Department of Justice fraud section uh, comes up with. Jay, uh, we had a very interesting article uh, about potential, a potential or proposed rather, framework for CCO liability analysis. What did you see in that article? Thanks, Tom. This comes to us from our good friend Menke Sun at the Wall Street Journal. Risk and Compliance Journal, uh, a compliance professionals group is asking regulators to consider how a corporate compliance program functions within a firm and specifically looking at the resources it has available and the support it receives from leadership when determining personal liability. Their organization is called the National Society of Compliance Professionals, and SCP, and it's based in Cornwall, Connecticut. It's a nonprofit organization that advocates and provides resources for compliance officers in the financial services sector. And recent framework proposed that regulators should also focus on understanding the full context in which the chief, the compliance chief, functions 
earlier in regulatory reviews, such as during examinations or enforcement investigations. The group said regulators, when conducting regulatory exams, could ask questions such as what a company's policies and procedures are, the role the compliance chief plays, the resources they have at their disposal, and which senior management is involved in approval decisions. The framework comes amid growing concern among compliance professionals about individual liability, which has arisen over the last decade, as regulators such as the SEC look to clarify the role of a compliance officer when determining their personal responsibility and affirms potential compliance failures. Based on the results of two surveys in 2020 and 2021, the NSCP's 2,000 members uh, completed the survey and 63 of the respondents said their concern that compliance officers would be individually charged in cases, and 72% of the respondents said they are concerned that regulators have expanded the role of compliance officers and the scope of their responsibilities in imposing liability. The framework, a year in the making, comes after the group held discussions with the SEC and FINRA. The group hopes to have more conversations in the future with regulators on these issues. The regulators could then decide to adopt the framework. NSCP's framework asks regulators to consider nine questions in cases where a compliance failure may have occurred and proposes that a yes answer to any of the nine should reduce a compliance chief's personal liability. The questions include whether the CCO had nominal rather than actual responsibility, ability or authority to affect the misconduct, and whether there was insufficient support from the company's leadership, including resourcing for the compliance chief to prevent or mitigate misconduct. Last June, the New York City Bar Association proposed a framework aiming to guide regulators' decisions to bring enforcement actions against chief compliance officers in the finance sector. That proposal asked regulators to evaluate 12 affirmative factors and three mitigating factors in deciding whether to charge the CCOs for conduct to their job-related duties. NSCP hopes the framework also can be a reference tool for chief compliance officers and company management when considering the structure of the business's compliance function. If there's a perceived target on the back of CCOs, that it's going to affect who's going into the profession and how they would act if there are issues. Tom, tell us about the manipulation on timing of FCPA enforcement actions. Yeah, Jay, this was a really interesting piece from our good friend Matthew Stevenson at the Global Anti-Corruption blog, and he wrote about an article that is still in process uh, which tries to demonstrate or correlate the timing of FCPA enforcement actions to U.S. Senate campaigns. Now, you're a recovering screenwriter, and if I had described that scenario to you, that U.S. senators are calling up the Department of Justice and say, hey, would you bring an enforcement action during my primary or general election campaign? Uh, would you take my pitch? You know, after all the craziness we've seen the last four years, I would take your pitch, Tom. Okay. Well, <laughs> we've established a basis now. Um, but the uh, Matthew dug, dug into this, and he looked at the uh, empirical data, and uh, simply because uh, senators have a re-election campaign and then there are FCPA enforcement actions, uh, it's, it's not a correlation that relates to anything. 
And I think uh, most of us think, Jay, that FCPA enforcement actions are largely non-political, and there's very little political influence, and certainly by a U.S. senator. Um, when you consider that half the senators are from the other side of the aisle, it's hard to imagine uh, a Republican senator calling up a, department, a D Democratic Department of Justice and say, hey, do me a favor, or vice versa. One of the top examples cited in the paper is John Cornyn, uh, who was uh, up for re-election and some uh, 19 months before he was up for re-election, there was enforcement action against Total, which uh, their U.S. subsidiary is based in Houston. And as the authors, or, or Matthew quite correctly points out, there have been lots of enforcement actions involving energy companies. They're largely in Houston. That makes Houston the FCPA epicenter of the world. And there's really no correlation between any of this. So it was a pretty interesting article. It was interesting to read what the authors tried to do and Matthew's really demolishing of, of what they have done. Uh, he does applaud them for, for looking at new and different angles, so I think we should definitely applaud him for that. But uh, there's, in my mind, Jay, no evidence that U.S. senators are influencing when FCPA enforcement actions are brought. Um, we have our second article from the FCPA blog about uh, Comtech coming to financial institutions. What'd you see, Jay? Uh, thanks, Tom. This comes to us from Christian Wonderly. And uh, more and more traditional banks are looking to acquire or partner with fintech firms. For the banks, it seems to be a way to expand their digital offerings across the financial services sector. And for the fintech firms, typically small, agile startups, it's a way to get much-needed capital. This fintech revolution and the business combinations it spawns are changing the landscape and bringing new compliance risks to banks. So first of all, if you, you might ask, what is fintech? The U.S. Chamber of Commerce defines it as any technology that delivers financial services through software such as online banking, mobile payment apps, or even cryptocurrency. Fintech is a broad category that encompasses many different technologies, but the primary objectives are to change the way consumers and businesses access their finances and compete with traditional banks. Why has fintech suddenly become so important? Although largely protected in the past by high barriers of entry, those barriers have started to crumble. Fintech is one reason COVID-19 and the changes it has brought to consumers is another. Fintech firms have responded to the new environment by leveraging non-traditional platforms such as e-commerce, telecom, and social media. As traditional banks sink com seek combinations with fintech firms, here are some unique risks that need to be identified. First, banks need to ensure that the compliance programs are adopted before integration and expansion. Quite often, under a startup mindset, costs are minimized and the compliance is not at the forefront. However, when a bank invests into these companies, quite often it is looking for rapid integration and expansion along with a host of problems that can come with new markets. Contractual provisions for an anti-corruption program should be in place to ensure that it's established before the merger. Second, banks should review for potential successor liability, particularly related to critical licenses or patents. This concept of successor liability, we've spoken before under the FCPA conduct, 
context. And under criminal law, it's the liabilities that are created from the misconducts of a predecessor company will continue to exist in post-acquisition or merger and therefore become the responsibility of the successor. Two more to look at. Banks need to find a balance between the cultures with transition staff. While banking and finance are publicly known for high salaries and aggressive risk-taking, this is not always the case as banking regulators have existed to help rein in these behaviors against a backdrop of compliance culture. In contrast, fintech entrepreneurs are often enticed by the potential by the potential of a windfall and operate with a startup environment when where growth could, is prioritized. Finally, tone at the top needs to be reestablished. Drawing from the above points, it's possible that critical staff that transition from the acquired company can create a cultural pocket that resists banking oversight. Leaders that leaders that transition to this new venture need to benchmark their own behaviors against the compliance culture. The risk of not doing so can be substantial and can become a very expensive problem post-acquisition when similar behaviors continue. Tom, what does our good friend Jim Deloach have on his mind in CCI? So Jim wrote about, really, uh, super forecasting. And Super forecasting was uh, developed by Phil Tetlock. And what Phil Tetlock did with super forecasting was bring together a, not necessarily a group of top experts, but people who are willing to study an issue and then forecast based upon that study. And um, originally there were several competitions between Tetlock's groups of sort of average Joes and uh, super forecasters at the Department of Defense. And it turned out that this average Joes who uh, did deeper research actually were more better forecasters. So that's a super forecaster. What Jim writes about is bringing those same strategies, Jay, to the um, corporate world. And he talks about leveraging the power of adhocracy to identify emerging risk, and he lays out a formula to do so. It starts with conducting brainstorming sessions, encouraging a cross-functional, cross-unit perspective, keeping it fresh, paying attention to the execution of strategy, uh, expecting a board to play a part in emerging, uh, recognizing emerging risks, and then implementation. Well, that's uh, really the formula that Phil Tetlock wrote about. So uh, it's great to see Jim apply this uh, to the corporate world. Uh, If we've learned one thing from the last, uh, I guess it's a year now, two years almost, since we locked down in March of 2020, that uh, it's no longer disaster recovery. It's no longer business continuity. It's business as usual. And you have to be able to see around corners. You have to be able to anticipate events Really, there are no more black swan events. Uh, that's just events. And you have to be able to anticipate them, and you have to be able to prepare and act when those events occur. And so I hope corporations will heed this advice from Jim, and I hope corporate compliance officers will also do the same thing. So what's going to happen in the new hybrid work environment? What's going to happen in your supply chain? What's going to happen... Uh, with regard to ESG as it relates to your corporation and your compliance? 
What's going to happen if we have a change in administration? What's going to happen if we have regime change in uh, countries where you do business? All questions that every compliance officer uh, needs to be asking and thinking through. So uh, always great stuff from Jim. Jay, what do you have for us? Uh, Next up, we're checking in with our good friend Mike Volkov on his Corruption, Crime, and Compliance blog. And we're going to give you a flavor of a couple different articles he wrote. Uh, We are in the second week of January now. So people are starting to finish up with their predictions for 2022, but that's exactly what uh, Mike is talking about. And he says, the new year is a great time for ethics and compliance professionals to take stock on their compliance program and to plot out a path forward. Luckily for most compliance professionals, there are a lot of opportunities to advance their objectives. And ENC is poised for another big jump on the corporate governance ladder and should be a big year for EMC professionals to push their respective companies to support such efforts. Mike sees three significant trends that will continue to play out this year and create opportunities. First, the continued emphasis on the importance of corporate culture. No surprise there. Second, the importance of ESG, and in particular the G, the governmental element. And three, the current administration's aggressive enforcement regulatory initiatives. For corporate culture, the ENC movement in the global business environment has been perhaps the most significant development over the last decade. Business leaders, politicians, and significant stakeholders now have embraced the importance of corporate culture. In this environment, ENC professionals have to embrace the need for building a robust ethical culture assessment and risk management process. In this respect, ENC professionals should devote more time to measuring and promoting their company's ethical culture and report on this issue to senior leadership and the board. ESG and the big G. The ESG movement is an opportunity for professionals. It's not a threat in any way to the importance of ethics and compliance programs. To the contrary, ENC professionals have to couch and rephrase their work in the overall context of corporate governance. An effective ethics and compliance program is an essential part of overall corporate governance. And as a result of this development, ENC professionals should take advantage of this opportunity to secure a robust reporting and collaborative relationship with senior leaders in the board. ENC professionals who understand this opportunity will continue to push and support ESG programs as a force multiplier for the ethics and compliance programs. Mike sees this as a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for those who recognize that they are bound to gain. And finally, aggressive enforcement and regulatory oversight. ENC professionals have to acknowledge that the risk environment for detection and prosecution by the Justice Department and regulatory agencies has increased. The Justice Department intends to increase enforcement of the FCPA, export controls and sanctions, money laundry violations. To the extent a company's risk profile touches these areas, ENC professionals will need to focus on additional efforts to manage these risks. The SEC has also demonstrated its commitment to increasing penalties. These new regulations should have a dramatic effect on corporate disclosures, internal management of ESG programs, and overall corporate risk management. Now we'll quickly hit on some of the 2022 FCPA predictions from the Volkov Law crystal ball. First, he sees that the DOJ and the SEC are likely to increase FCPA enforcement and potentially exceed prior years of aggressiveness. 
FCPA cases are in the pipeline and ready to move. Now here comes some specific uh, information be being sent from Karnak the Great or Karnak the Magnificent to Mike Volkov. The DOJ is likely to exceed 20 FCPA corporate enforcement actions, 30 individual criminal indictments, and total monetary penalties of over three or four billion. What's a billion or two here, right? The SEC will match the number of corporate enforcement actions. Individual enforcement cases should increase beyond the single case the SEC brought last year. And global anti-corruption enforcement is rapidly evolving through cooperation and co coordination among prosecutors and law enforcements. Foreign anti-corruption agencies in Brazil, France, and the United Kingdom are serious players along with the U.S. DOJ and SEC anti-corruption compliance expectations are increasing. Companies that ignore the DOJ and the SEC FCPA guidelines and investment in ethics, effective ethics and compliance program can expect a cool reception from prosecutors. And finally, prosecutors can continue to review the authority and independence of the compliance officer. A CCO has to have the resources needed to execute an effective program. Furthermore, a CCO has to have adequate authority and responsibility for controls to exercise appropriate discretion over potential violations of the law and corporate policies. Companies that fail to create an effective environment for the CCOs to work risk enforcement and increased penalty. All in all, Mike says to buckle up because 2022 will be a big year for DOJ and SEC FCPA enforcement. Tom, tell us about how banks are developing a climate risk consortium. So, Jay, this is uh, really good news and a story by Aaron Nicodemus from Compliance Week. The Bank of America, Wells Fargo, headline a climate risk consortium of a group of 19 banks in the U.S. and Canada who will um, formed it in uh, response to calls from investors and regulators to help uh, mitigate climate risk within their own operations, as well as those from their clients, customers, and borrowers. The group was formed with the Risk Management Association, and it's going to help develop standards for banks uh, to integrate climate risk management throughout their operations. And uh, this is a, a very welcome uh, development, Jay, because if we can get banks to develop some standards. Uh, obviously, they are, are typically large uh, employee-centric organizations with hundreds of thousands, sometimes, or thousands of employees, rather. And so if we can get uh, some sort of guidance from banks on how they're going to integrate climate risk management into their operations, I think it will really help a lot of other uh, corporations from the largest uh, all the way down. Also, it'll give us a set of standards that we can uh, benchmark going forward. So uh, applaud what the uh, the banks have done. The consortium was launched in 2021 with 17 members. It's going to give practical advice to banks on addressing climate risk, how to develop strategies, risk appetites, trainings, policies, boards, assessments, really the entire panoply of what we would see in the compliance world. So hopefully this will be something that will spread a little bit and uh, will gain some traction in the broader corporate America, Jay. What do you have for us uh, for our last article, Jay? Well, I've got one that I haven't had in a while. This comes to us from the New York University School of Law's Program on Corporate Compliance and Enforcement. 
Uh, hope I don't butcher their name too badly. It comes to us from Kelly Hagedorn and Matthew Warby. And the article is entitled Further Clarity on Liability of Local Representatives Under the UK GDPR Expected. So now I'll have to channel my inner Jonathan Armstrong while we talk about this one. Companies not established in the UK who process personal data of UK-based individuals are required to appoint a representative in the UK pursuant to Article 27 of the UK GDPR. This requirement may become less practical and more expensive depending on the outcome of a UK Court of Appeal case between Baldo Senso Rondon and the LexisNexis Risk Solutions. The case relates to the appointment of representatives under the EU GDPR, but will have significant impact in the UK because the UK GDPR framework contains an identical requirement to appoint a UK-based representative. Here's the case background. In 2020, Mr. Rondon issued a claim against LexisNexis in its capacity of as World Compliance Inc.'s GDPR representative in the UK. World Compliance runs a database designed to help subscribers comply with anti-money laundering and terrorist financing laws by holding profile on millions of individuals for screening purposes. Mr. Rondon argued that a representative appointed in compliance with Article 27 of the GDPR is a local embodiment of the foreign controller or processor. That representative, therefore, is an entity within the jurisdiction to which GDPR can apply with legal force with the representative stepping into the shoes of the processor. This case raises several significant implications both for representatives that fall under the UK GDPR as well as the controllers or processors seeking to mandate them. These include, first off, the extent to which a representative may be taking on an unknown level of liability for the acts of others. Two, the ability for the representative to use a contractual mechanism to pass any liability found to exist onto the controller or process it represents. Three, the extent to which the ICO would seek to enforce such an interpretation. And finally, how a representative might try to correct the behavior of a non-UK-based controller or processor it represents and how it might extricate itself from such a relationship. Here's the key points of interest at this stage. There are two key points of interest arising from Mr. Rondon's appeal. First, if the UK Court of Appeal rules that Article 27 representatives may be liable for the actions of the controllers or processors they represent, then this would almost certainly lead to fewer representatives willing to take on the role. And secondly, before the UK High Court judgment, there was no relevant guidance or decided case law covering the role and the liability of Article 27. Whilst divergence in respect to the GDPR and the part of the UK has always been anticipated at some point, it will be interesting to see the extent to which the EU will rely on, implicitly accept the UK's view of the liability of Article 27 represents for the future. So, Tom, those are the articles for the week. What kind of podcasts and media do we have coming up? So, Jay, we had some uh, great pods this week. Uh, the coolest guy in compliance and myself on our podcast of Compliance Into the Weeds concluded a two-part special where we took a look at um, uh, some uh, issues that we're following in 2022. 
On the Compliance Life, this month we have Valerie Charles, currently a partner at Stone Turn. Valerie has one of the most interesting journeys in compliance because uh, after becoming a CCO, she went into the ComTech world and uh, helped produce products or be a part of a team that produce uh, compliance products and solution. So we talk about that, uh, move into that world in this episode, episode two. Uh, our Everything Compliance colleague, Karen Woody, continues her most unique podcast, Classroom Insider, where she interviews her students on insider trading issues. In episode four, she talks to Colin Manchester about the evolution of the disclose or abstain rule. I'm going to let uh, you talk about your colleague, uh, Mikhail Ryder-Gordon, and what she's got going on this week. And I'm going to conclude, Jay, by reminding people that we're in the middle of 31 Days to a More Effective Compliance Program. Uh, every day this week at noon, I release a podcast, <clears throat> which is uh, six to eight minutes, short, pithy, uh, with three key takeaways of one thing you can do, or rather three things you can do at little or no cost to improve your compliance program. So what's Mikhail up to, Jay? Uh, she is up to season two of her Wirecard podcast called Lies, Spies, and Corporate Crimes. And on this Wednesday, you were kind enough to drop Episode number three, which is Shell Games. As always, uh, there's a link in our show notes, so you can follow them to any of the fine podcasts we talked about. And Tom, do you have anything more to say about 31 Days? So uh, I hope you will uh, continue to uh, check in on 31 Days to a more effective compliance program and as we move uh, through the month of uh, January. You want to take us home, Jay? Love to. So Tom Fox is the voice of compliance, and he can be reached at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. And I'm Jay Rosen, a.k.a. Mr. Monitor, and you can reach me at the initial J-R-O-S-E-N at affiliatedmonitors.com. We'd like to thank you for joining us for this week in FCPA, episode 286 for the week ending January 14th, the 2022 edition of Georgia finally beats Alabama. It's uh, We send our congratulations out to the Bulldogs, and we invite you to join us next week when you can hear me whine about the Patriots' loss, but also talk about this week and FCPA. Thanks for joining us. Have fun watching football this weekend, and we'll talk to you soon. This is Tom Fox. Thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. As I mentioned, I'm doing 31 Days to a More Effective Compliance Program. Please check out the episode, which posts each day at noon on the Compliance Podcast Network, Spotify, iTunes, JD Supra, or whichever platform you listen to for your podcast. Also check out Classroom Insiders, Karen Woody's new podcast on the history of insider trading. Finally, the last week of January, I will premiere my podcast series, The Trial of the Century, The Enron Trial, where with former business columnist from the Houston Chronicle, Lauren Steffi, we reflect back on The Enron Trial. Check out these shows and many more on the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.